morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to have you here online. It's fantastic that we can use this medium to be able to keep in touch. But we certainly miss you and wish you were here today as we would have uh, enjoyed that music together, wouldn't we? Well, as I continue on in this look at the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we find ourselves now at a place where we're really starting to get into the nitty-gritty of what Paul was communicating with this, this, uh, this small but uh, vibrant church about. This small but sometimes uh, naughty church, could we say? But um, we're going to find out more and more about that as we push on into the book. What I want you to try to imagine right now, I just want to take you through a bit of a mind map. I want you to imagine the, the Tasman Sea. And the Tasman Sea, of course, has New Zealand on the, uh, the, the right-hand side of that. North Island, South Island. I want you to imagine the South Island. So we've got a, a sea with an island on it. And within, on that island, we've got a lake called Lake Wanaka. On that lake, there's another island called Ruby Island. And on that island, there's another lake. So we've got a, a lake on an island on a lake on an island in a sea, which is um, pretty cool, really, isn't it? It's kind of neat. If you go down there, go get a, get a little boat ride out uh, and go and have a tour of that little island. But what we've got going on here within Scripture is we've got the Roman Empire, and within the Roman Empire, we've got the Greek nation. And within the Greek nation, we've got Corinth. And in Corinth, there's a Jewish synagogue. And within the Jewish synagogue, Paul was preaching to create for them an understanding that their Christ, their Messiah, had come. And so here we find this little group of people, a little group of people that were founded within a synagogue, within a city of Corinth, within the nation of Greece, within the empire of Rome. And so this little group of people, as small as they were, and as, shall we say, misbehaved as they were, were Paul's hope for this nation, Paul's hope for this city, and it meant that for Paul, he was investing all that he could into this nation, into this city, into these people, that Christ would be able to become fully formed in them. And when you think of the small beginning that we're talking about here, it's absolutely staggering, isn't it, to think that the church that we know now, 2,000 years ago, grew out of this group of people and others like it. But of course, as we're finding in Corinthians, there's a lot of community correction that is needed to help them get on and understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And I need to just pick up on where we were last week because Paul was calling out the whole community for allowing a man with some very, very dubious moral behavior going on. And, uh, and he corrected them, but he went on to say that we have to begin this judgment in the house of God, and it's not for us to judge the world around us, because we are concerned about the way the church operates, the way the church functions and looks. And Paul said we shouldn't be focusing upon judging the world around us. Let's just remind us by looking at that scripture. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And so, the challenge that Paul is laying here is he's saying, listen, we are a community within a wider community. But the tension for us when we look at scriptures like this is uh, we see how it is that Paul is creating an alternative community called the church. But how alternative should that be? How different should it be? Are we to be like the glory of our Christian community that 
is in Greymouth, and we often see it in the newspaper being uh, spoken of in negative ways. Is that really what Paul was trying to say? We need to be so different, so distinct, that we're separated out from the rest of the world in very defined ways. We can all wear the same clothes, put big fences around our, our communities, and really, really, I suppose, become like a little island in the middle of a, of a lake, in the middle of an ocean. You see what I'm saying? Or are we called to be part of society, but different and seen for our difference in a positive way? So the title of the message this morning is called um, Called Out and Called Up. We're called out of the mainstream of society, but we're called up to be like Christ. And, and this is what Paul is trying to do to take this community on a journey. But he keeps running into trouble. He keeps hearing about problems that this community is experiencing. And so we're going to address another one of those today as Paul comes to understand that these folks have been taking legal action against one another in the church. People who worship together, fellowship together, are actually engaged in legal or litigation against one another. So here's Paul addressing this in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So here we are. Here's the problem. Paul has heard that there is court action going on. And instead of sorting it out amongst ourselves, we're going straight to the legal uh, authorities within the city. And as Paul said, we're asking ungodly people to judge the Christians, to judge the godly. Now, I think we've got to draw a quick distinction here between this period of time and what we experience now in the Western world with respect to our legal process. I, like you, will probably know uh, a number of Christian judges, a number of Christian lawyers. Uh, law and the administration of law was a lot more arbitrary in the day of Rome and, and, and Greece. Uh, law was not so tight. It was more about the response of that judge and how he would respond to you. Very little by way of precedent was set. He would really just administer what he saw in front of him based upon what he thought was a right or appropriate action. So the whole legal process was a lot more um, risky, I suppose. That would be the easiest thing to say. But Paul goes on to say this. He says, to add more weight to this, uh, this challenge to them, he says, uh, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of the unbelievers. Now, Paul's got a number of things that are going on here. Firstly, he's saying, listen, we should be able to sort this out amongst ourselves. But there's another challenge also going on about the nature of the problems that they were asked to work out. You see, the size of the problem and the nature of the problem actually defines the size and the nature of your character. Because if you get offended over little things and you're perpetually in conflict with people over little things, that means that your character is quite little. And so Paul's got two problems here. Problem being is that these folks were having difficulties and differences which could have been sorted out just by having good wisdom wrapped around them and good uh, counsel and good understanding of what each other's needs were. 
but instead they were taking each other to court. And by doing this, they were exposing the Christians as being weak in character, weak in nature, easily offended, and therefore having very little positive point of difference to anybody else in the whole community. So Paul is saying, listen, as a community, you have competence. As a community, you have the ability to sort these problems out amongst yourselves. So therefore, do what it is that Jesus said you should do. And Jesus was very, very direct about how it is that we should sort out problems amongst ourselves. And, and we can do this, can't we? We can do this because it's set out in process. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you see how it is that Jesus described it in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So it's a very, very formal process. And it's a good process because right at the outset, what you're doing is you're minimizing the amount of essentially gossip or slander that can occur around a problem. If you've got a problem with somebody, you go straight to them and say, listen, hey, I think there's something going on between us. This is what I see. This is what I heard you did or said. What can we do to sort this out? And we would hope that nine times out of 10, people go, whoa, sorry about that. I didn't realize that this was going this way. Uh, I'm going to make a change, or I'll retract that, or I'll apologize. And that's good, uh, mature Christian faith. We're always going to get something wrong. We're always going to stand on somebody's toes, but we shouldn't allow it to escalate. However, if it does escalate, Jesus was very clear about this, take a couple of witnesses, people who can arbitrate or people who can uh, bring some sort of process of reconciliation. And that allows two people to have some counsel about how they can move this together. And, and, And so the process starts to get bigger and bigger. Ultimately, ultimately, the church needs to hear about the problem if it's not being reconciled. And if it's such that the problem is so big and it's such a violation against Christian principles, then we are told that we should treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, a pagan or a tax collector obviously is someone whom God loves, whom Jesus died for. So we're not talking about abandoning people here, just kicking them into the gutter. We're talking about treating them as people who are not spiritually discerned, who are not putting Christ at the very center of their life, like a pagan or a tax collector. Not to be hard on them, not to be unloving on them, but to ensure that we can process what it is that we are are doing. And the person who's been doing the offending understands that they are now uh, outside of the the, the boundaries of that community. Now, the problem we have with with all these uh, ways in which we get wound up is that we often leave ourselves wound up. And it's not always easy, is it, to say, oh, yeah, look, I'm just going to forgive and just going to move on. Um, But it is important for us to understand where the lines are drawn. Because there is room, there is room for some legal process if the issue gets to the point where somebody is totally abandoning the Christian principles and the community decides that this behavior has to stop. Now, I want to um, just give an illustration. If I roll the clock back uh, 
uh, the better part of 30 years, I worked for the Inland Revenue Department. And uh, during that time, I had to, how shall we say, um, assist people in paying their taxes. Um, yes, that would be me. I'd go and knock on people's doors and say, hey, listen, you've got an outstanding debt. How can we arrange for you to pay this off? Now, there were situations that developed where you would see repetitive offenders, people who weren't paying their tax, but they were also ripping off people within the community, uh, setting up limited liability companies uh, or, or, or businesses, limited liability partnerships, that they would then go and start a business, get money off people by way of investment, and then rip them off. Now, often the tension there was that the amount of money that they were ripping people off for was never enough to cause somebody to head towards legal action. And so we would see this activity and we would see the debts. And so we would act accordingly to what it is that we felt was our social obligation. Our social obligation was to take these people out. In other words, stop them ripping off others. And if you find that you've got a situation in the church where somebody is consistently or intentionally ripping somebody off and taking advantage of good Christian grace, then there's room for legal action in there. However, however, let's stick to what Jesus was saying, sorry, what Paul was saying here in regards to how we in the church ideally should handle this. And it's quite funny what happens here is Paul offers two good reasons as to why it is that um, we shouldn't be taking somebody to court. And the first one he describes is a higher way. Not a highway, a higher way. And, uh, and let's have a look at what Paul tells the community. He says this, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Whoa, hold on. Isn't this all about justice? Isn't this all about wrong being seen as wrong, right being seen as right, and you being vindicated, you being let off this, uh, the, the result of this evil intention by somebody else? Well, Paul doesn't see it that way. He says, no, no, for the sake of the community, there are times when maybe you just need to suck it up. Maybe there are times when someone took advantage of you and you're just going to say, well, I've learned that lesson. I'm not, I'm not going to get burnt again. You know, we don't become a doormat to everybody's evil intentions. But there are times when we just go, okay, lesson learned. I'm not going to take it any further. But for now, I'm going to suck it up. Why would Paul suggest that? Well, quite simply, he's drawing, he's drawing upon the greater narrative, the greater story within our Christian community. And that is the very person of Jesus who sucked up, if you like, took upon himself our sins, our crimes, and in doing so, set us free. Paul is saying, look, you can talk to somebody in your community who has ripped you off and say, listen, uh, I could take you to court, but I'm not going to. You've cheated me. You've cost me money. I just want to let you know that I know that, but I'm not going to do anything about it but I'd like you to know that you're forgiven and you have a place as a brother or a sister within this community. But let's not do this again. Essentially the same as what Christ said when he, he, he forgave us for our sins by dying on the cross for us, paying the price for those sins. And in, by inviting us 
to take on the same attitude as Christ, as Paul does, by allowing ourselves uh, to be cheated, Paul is pointing us towards a, a higher level of functionality, a higher level of spirituality, a higher level of community. And so it's a big challenge for us because we know we're being wronged, but for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the church, and even the well-being of the person who's ripped you off, you suck it up. So here we are looking at this high ground, and we think, gosh, Paul, that's a real challenge for us, and you're appealing to the greater good that you believe is in me, the greater good that you believe is in me, by saying, just be cheated for the sake of the church, be cheated for the sake of the kingdom. But Paul, almost within the same breath, then takes a completely different angle as to why it is that we should accept the fact that there are times we're going to get ripped off. And he says this, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So Paul's in one minute saying, listen, be like Jesus and suck it up. And then he completely flips over and he says, oh, and by the way, don't think yourself so hot either. Don't think yourself so good. You've been ripping off people as well. You've been cheating. You've been lying. So don't think yourself as, uh, as being superior to anybody else. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a distinct change, isn't it, from being called to be like Christ. Paul just simply says, listen, mate, you're not that good either. You've probably hurt people, ripped people off in some way, cheated and lied. So let's just look at it in a sober way and say, hey, this isn't about me being better than somebody. Just recognize that we're all sinners here together. It just so happened that you got ripped off. You may have ripped somebody else off. That's not being called out at the moment, but you're probably, if you could get away with it, no better than the person who's ripping you off. Big call, isn't it? A tough call for a, a, a Christian leader to make to his church by saying to them, hey, listen, you're not that flash. You've done wrong things too. So let's not get on your righteous high horse and ping everybody for all the issues that they may have. Jesus um, put it very clearly. And of course, we know that Paul would have been appealing to Jesus when he says this. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, with no expense spared, thanks, Rob, um, I've got a plank, a, a perfectly good plank for purposes of illustration. Now, some years ago, I thought it would be a great idea. I did this a couple of times. When I was taking a wedding ceremony, I would turn up to the wedding and uh, the bride and the groom would be there and I would have a plank of wood just in behind me. And partway through the wedding ceremony, I'd get this and I'd look at the couple and I'd say, I'm going to gift this piece of wood to you because this is a way in which you can keep peace within your marriage. Now, of course, everybody thought that it was, you know, take a hunk of timber and whack the person who's offending. But then I would go on to talk about how it is that we have to take the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our spouse's eye. Now, I can only hope 
that the plank of wood in, within the marriages that I gave them to was used for illustrative purposes only, and no one used them for any alternative purpose. But you get the idea, and, and, and what Paul is alluding to in this is saying, listen, you can take somebody to court, but just remind yourself, you've got to take a plank out of your own eye as well. You're not that hot. You're not that perfect that you think you can go and litigate against everybody or anyone who is um, offending you. So let's have a look at what um, Paul now goes on to say. Paul goes on to say this. He gets even more challenging. In fact, to the point of being insulting. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. So Paul is creating this big list to sober people up. He's saying, listen, you guys were not that flash when you first met Jesus. You guys were not on the, on the top of the righteous list when you first met, met Jesus. And when you look at the list of these things that Paul's pointed out, uh, there are some pretty heinous sins in there, some pretty ugly things where other people are being hurt or they've been unruly in their behavior uh, or there have been people who have deceived others. You can see how it is that, that Paul is saying to them all, look, who are you to take your brother or sister to court? You're all guilty of sin. But the problem was, for some of these folks, they hadn't moved on beyond that sinful life. And we saw this in last week's sermon, where Paul was aghast at the fact that a man who'd come to Christ was still in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. So Paul was saying to them this, that your start line is not your finishing line. Your start line is not your finishing line. You, you move on. You move on. And in a couple of chapters in a few weeks' time, we're going to be looking at something that Paul is going to press into. You see, the Corinthian community was known for a number of things. It was a place of trade, but it was also a place of competitive athletic events that happened every two years, the Isthmus Games. And Paul is saying to this church community that you're called out and you're called up. You're called out of the society, and you're called up to be like Jesus. Uh, so let me tell you what it is that we're going to look at later, because it's important, because it applies now. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So Paul's here talking about the games. Everybody knows about the games because the athletes are, are there every second year. Then Paul goes on to say this, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Do you notice how Paul turns this whole story of uh, athletics in and starts talking about personal discipline. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body. He doesn't strike a blow to somebody else's body. 
And so the reference here is to the body of Christ also. Paul's saying, don't strike a blow to the body of somebody else. Strike the blow to your own body so that you can be uh, under, the, under the lordship of Christ, that your spirit, that your uh, intelligence, that your actions are all being trained up under Christ. Of course, this illustration would have been a powerful illustration because of the fact that the games were there. And uh, this, this famous statue called the Discopolis, um, I did some work on this actually, and I found out that uh, this guy was actually the first pizza delivery man. And you can see him there just about to launch a pizza. Uh, the reason why he's naked is because he didn't get many tips. Uh, the pizzas arrived in very poor condition. But, uh, you know, Domino's is a Greek name, and, uh, and this is where it started. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, um, in all seriousness, I don't know how bad jokes like that communicate into your living room, to be quite honest. But, um, yeah, you'll never look at this guy again without thinking of pizza, will you? But uh, the Greeks loved athletics because it was all about discipline. And Paul was appealing to this, saying, listen, your starting place and your finishing place are not the same. You start by coming to Christ in bad shape, but you don't stay there. You move on. You, you, you spiritually go on this journey where you discipline yourself and you lay aside, you repent of the things that are not looking like Jesus, that don't look like Jesus, that affect and disturb others. And so Paul goes on and we'll finish with this verse. It says this. After that big list of sins, Paul says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, the one thing I love about Paul is that he just cannot help himself. He cannot help himself but bring everything back to the goodness of Christ and what it is that Christ has done for us. Paul just is perpetually reminding these people of who they are. They are not people who are bathed and overwhelmed by sin. Paul is saying that might be, might be your actions, but that's not your destination. This is who you are. So behave in keeping with who you are. Behave in keeping with who Christ has called you to be. Behave in keeping with the way God sees you as people who are, who are sinless because of forgiveness and who are sanctified, and who are justified. Paul is building an image in this community of who these people are meant to be. And did it work? Yes, it did. Because 2,000 years later, the church is probably the most powerful organization or institution on the planet. Why? Because people like these folks Paul were writing to, people like us, we're called out and we're called up. Called out and called up to lay aside those sinful activities, to lay aside litigation, to suck it up and be like Christ, to give grace to others, to offer forgiveness to others, to give room for people to grow even when they should have been punished. For us, that's what grace looks like in action. That is what Christian community is built around and built upon. And for that reason, that's why the church will continue to perpetuate itself from generation to generation, because the Spirit of God works tirelessly to ensure that this happens. And by doing this, we are an alternative community. Not because we're dressed up, it look like people who go to Gloryvale, 
not because we've got a gift of weirdness, but because we offer grace where it shouldn't be given. We offer love where it's never deserved. We offer forgiveness where it hasn't been earned. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let us pray. God, we're reminded by Paul once again of just how far you want us to travel. For some, Lord, we look back and we see, gosh, that list of sins, that's defining because it was a starting place. And that was for me a long time ago. For others, you look at that list and you go, wow, I'm still wrestling my way through this. I'm still getting over this. I'm still becoming more and more like Christ. But all of us, Lord, wherever we are on this journey, we're all drawn back to one point in history, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we thank you, Lord, that when we look at the errors, we look at the sins, and we look at the, 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 sometimes the stupidity that goes on within the body of Christ, we're reminded of how Jesus died for all of our stupidity, all of our foolishness, all of our sinfulness. And so we too, we too can look at Christ and we too can say in, in humility, I'm prepared to take a few hits. I'm prepared to hold back the fire that I'd like to put on someone else and offer them love, offer them counsel, offer them forgiveness, that we might be the alternative community that exists, that we, the church, are like a little lake in an island, in a lake, on an island, in an ocean, that we can be the people called out to be the people of God. Let it be, we pray, in Jesus' name. Well, we're going to finish our service here this morning, and uh, I'd just like to encourage you, um, if you're feeling up to it and you're feeling comfortable and safe, uh, attend your life groups this week, because we know that we're not locked down to, uh, uh, we're only locked down to 100 people. Uh, obviously, we need to keep that social distancing, uh, but do the best that you can. The, the sermon study is going to be up online, so take advantage of that. But we're going to keep in touch with you this week and let you know what we're doing. We expect to have just one more week of uh, doing church online, and then we're trusting, praying, believing that we'll get back to normal again. So God bless you for now. Have a great week.